This is The Interchange Recharged. I'm David Van Miller. At the end of June, the Environmental Protection Agency launched a $7 billion grant competition, funded, of course, by the IRA, to increase access to solar energy among low-income households. We are here today to announce a $7 billion national program. That's because this state has demonstrated exemplary leadership in implementing solar technology. You know, the rooftop solar panels installed by companies serves as a model for the community's willingness to move towards and embrace affordable, secure solutions to power your homes and your businesses. In March of last year, we looked at community solar on the show, in particular, the need for distributed solar and the ways that it can be delivered to households. Check it out if you missed it, but there's been countless developments in the area since. Today, we're exploring what they are. The energy transition can't be solved by just infrastructure or digital solutions alone, nor just with financial capital. With the media attention largely focused on massive infrastructure projects like wind farms and solar power plants, we're switching focus to the community and individual consumer level. Community solar is a model where households don't have solar on the roof but have shared access to an offsite farm is a simple idea. CleanWatts is a digital tech company focusing on developing the model and deploying community solar at scale. One of the major stumbling blocks CleanWatts identified for communities wanting to implement local energy generation capacity was the financing needed for the infrastructure. Trillions of dollars globally are allocated for large-scale projects, so CleanWatts decided to provide infrastructure as a service for the communities they partner with. Michael Pinto is CEO and co-founder of CleanWatts. Efficiency has to be intelligent. It has to be based on a whole bunch of different factors, ranging from what the weather's like tomorrow to when should the load be switched on. Navigating regulatory frameworks and supply chain dependencies is a big challenge. Is CleanWatts the solution? Let's find out. So, Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about CleanWatts, uh, what you guys are doing these days. Sure. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're focused on the local energy market landscape. We're really looking to simplify, amplify, and accelerate uh, the transition for local communities by addressing the problems that are inherent to that part of the transition. And so what specifically are you guys working with the communities on? Sure. Uh, well, you know, our, our belief is that fundamentally the transition is clumsy, uh, clunky, and challenging for local communities, right? We, we've seen and, and, and felt the pain that uh, local communities struggle with when they want to uh, you know, implement um, local clean energy generation capacity when they want to share uh, in the benefits of the transition locally. Uh, but even when they just want to move towards electrifying rather heating, cooling, and transport for the local community, we're originally a, a digital company, right? So we're, we're effectively a clean tech company that was born out of the digital landscape. But the point of conviction we've had for now several years is that you can't solve the energy transition locally by just proposing sort of infrastructure. And you can't solve it only with digital, and you certainly can't solve it with financial capital uh, alone either. You need all three of these components to work in synchronicity. That's what we try to do at CleanWatts, bring it all together. That's great, because I completely agree. I mean, there's so much media attention that's that's given to you know the big things wind solar infrastructure but in order to make the energy transition successful you really need to get down to that community and individual consumer level uh, because sometimes i think those are getting you know washed aside but for it to be successful you really need all cylinders uh, operating at once uh, what are some of the biggest challenges that you guys are facing 
and that you're helping to find solutions for? Sure. So, you know, here in Europe, we we operate very much in the uh, in the scope of the energy community uh, construct. So, the renewable energy community uh, definition, which is provided and covered for by the European Union Directive on Renewable Energy, it provides a very clear definition of uh, what a renewable energy community is, how to how to operate. Uh, there are various. There are two variations, right? There's a citizen energy community, and there's a renewable energy community construct. And both of those really kind of have a, a, a head nod to the fact that you you can have a locally sourced, cheap, clean energy source, say rooftop PV, uh, and then you're allowed to effectively share in those benefits uh, within certain parameters within the community setting. Uh, when we looked at that landscape in Portugal, where we're headquartered, uh, we immediately saw that one of the first stumbling blocks was, okay, well, who's going to pay for the infrastructure to actually start benefiting from all of this? And so being a software company, we already had the holistic platform to be able to manage sort of loads and visualization management control of energy, all three axes, right? Consumption, generation, and storage behind the meter. And we also had, you know, the the beginnings of what ultimately became our front of the meter offering, right? Around resiliency, flex, flexibility, demand response. And what we saw was that the financing piece, right, around the infrastructure itself was a bit of a stumbling block. So we we kind of took a step back and and said, well, you know, gosh, there's if there's one thing that we're not missing, it's um, you know quite literally trillions of dollars at a global scale that are looking to be allocated for these kind of projects, right? And so uh, we put our thinking caps on and, and sort of try to figure out how to seamlessly bring the right kind of capital partners in to support us to provide a zero upfront investment experience for uh, for the communities that we serve. So we come in with the infrastructure as a service, right? Um, and then through our platform, you know, sell energy as a service and then all the other um, stacks of services that come with the transition uh, locally, right? As, as you said, there's trillions of dollars out there uh, that want to invest in the energy transition. And it's finding that home that really can make the largest impact. But the money's there. So what what was your experience in obtaining that financing? How exactly did you go about it? Yeah. So at the start of the journey, you know, like all journeys, you start small, you test yourself and see if it works. And and you know, we we were fortunate enough to be in the right place at the right time. Portugal was one of the countries that actually was one of the first to come out of the gates, uh, you know, effectively transposing the directive into national law, uh, the European directive that is, and um, and that afforded us the opportunity to sort of creatively look at that journey. Our first energy community in Miranda do Douro was uh, roughly about forty kilowatts of solar PV capacity at the hu- at the centerpiece of uh, of that community, uh, which you might say, well, that's tiny, right? And and yet we still needed to find sort of private funds, right? So at the beginning it was family office type discussions, right? Hey, can you can you look to allocate your capital into this structure and for all the energy that we sell, you know, we'll siphon off and bring you back. Uh, returns on that initial investment. And when we saw that first launch, in fact, the country's first energy community was launched by CleanWatts in August 2021, um, we we saw that it was was a a, viable business model, if you will, and success begot success. And now we're on the tail end of, I think, 160 signed contracts with anchor clients, which is where we start our journey, right? Uh, And that PV solar capacity it's gone up from 40 kilowatt peak to today at roughly about 200, 250 kilowatt peak. So I, I think, and initially to your point very specifically, right, the allocation of capital came from private individuals, family offices and, so, and such. 
um, over the course of the last six months, we've shifted our sights entirely, just the scale of, uh, of the backlog and pipeline we're working with uh, has solicited the attention and garnered the focus of you know, much larger infrastructure players that we're working with now, right, to, to expedite the allocation of funds. So partnering with with industry players uh, to develop the solutions. Yeah. So so think of infrastructure funds, uh, some institutional investors also, but uh, but largely infra funds that uh, they're very keen to operate at this level. And what they see in Clean Watts is the portfolio approach. Right. You don't have to kind of invest in one specific uh, narrowly defined opportunity, but it's actually a portfolio of opportunities. Um, and, and that, that makes it much more appealing, right? You don't want to sit there and underwrite every single deal, right? You want eligibility criteria to, to be defined rather broadly. And then, uh, and then we, we sort of allocate that capital that way, right? In larger amounts. And to the diversification of the risk. Oh, completely. Uh, absolutely. So, and, and diversification, uh, risk diversification is actually an important characteristic of communities inherently, right? So we begin our journey with what we call an anchor client. Uh, an anchor client is no nothing more than just you know a, a building with a flat, large surface. Right? You, we prefer rooftop PV as a starting point for obvious reasons. Um, you know the, the the waiting periods are a little shorter, right? In terms of approvals, there's no new interconnect to be built, and so these surfaces, right? So rooftops effectively are uh, larger than if you convert all of that into PV panels. Uh, the energy generation capacity is much larger than the behind the meter consumption profile of that anchor client. And that's fine, right? We build excess by design. And what that does is it affords us the possibility to offer to that anchor client, you know, 15, 20 year PPA fixed price, linear visibility to their uh, energy costs behind the meter, zero transmission charges, right? Because it's behind the meter. Um, and then all the excess, uh, call it 70% of the generative capacity there is uh, excess. We then match through CleanWatts OS, our operating system, to uh, the smart meters of the community members. And the way the directive has been transposed into national law uh, sees those locally consumed in real time matched against the excess generative capacity. That energy effectively uh, is recognized then by the regulator and by the DSO as effectively not tapping into uh, the transmission charges at a national level. So a lot of the grid charges are actually waived, right? And so the community member gets an automatic uh, benefit in their bills for those amounts of energy that are consumed at the same time that the excess is generated locally, right? And so so that's how we kind of connect those different pot uh, parts. And then uh, anything that's left over in excess to the excess is then spilled over to the wholesale markets. So how on, on these individual communities that have been coming up, I mean, how have the results been? Obviously, it's a it's a cost reduction, as, as you just outlined. But I mean, to what extent and also what has been the results from a an efficiency standpoint, reliability standpoint, uh, just overall has been the impact? Yeah. So so the uptake in Portugal has been just massive. Right. So we're we're right now standing on a backlog of 53 megawatts in aggregate capacity. Uh, considering that our first energy community was 40 kilowatt peak in August, right? So <laughs> 53 megawatts is uh, something to be proud of. And and again, that's about 160 contracts. So some of those contracts are well over uh, one and a half megawatts. Uh, but but the, the average tends to be roughly around 200 kilowatt peak. Um, and uh, look, for the anchor client, it's not unusual for them to see sort of... Um, penciling out savings of 30, 40, 
percent, sometimes even north of that, right, in terms of uh, the cost that they would otherwise pay from the grid. And remember that they're still connected to the grid, right? See, these are not islands, right? So they're still receiving a bill from the grid supplier, right, the, the retailer, if you will, and they're getting another bill for the behind the meter consumption. But for the part that they're getting from the uh, from clean watts for behind the meter, there's a sub substantive saving already right there, which overall blended rate uh, affords them a lot of uh, cost abatement. For the community members, uh, the storyboard is, uh, it varies, right? So uh, residentials, small, medium-sized businesses, sort of to the point that you were making earlier, there's an inherent risk diversification in the, in the, in the actual community itself and in the portfolio of communities, right? So from, from that standpoint, there's a really nice story to tell from a risk and underwriting perspective. Uh, but community members themselves, uh, you know, they're they're looking at typically twenty five to thirty five percent cost abatement. This is significant savings. Yeah, especially nowadays, right? And uh, and in, initially, you know, pre pandemic, we were looking at the space through the lens primarily of decarbonization and energy poverty. Uh, the additional element that's coming to play here is around sort of you know uh, energy security, um, you know. Also, the ability to play flexibility and resiliency markets, like the, the ancillary services, right? So, uh, Portugal's not open for that yet, but uh, other markets in Europe are, and uh, everyone's kind of looking intently at that space too, because the next set of challenges really kind of happen at that low voltage level, right? Yeah, a couple of uh, points. I mean, I mean, one, we, we've talked about the cost savings, so that's that's clear. Uh, you also mentioned energy poverty. So this helps with some of those underprivileged areas get the energy that they need. What are you working with your clients on in terms of energy efficiency, right? From from kind of a software standpoint, because that's going to be another piece that, you know, I've mentioned before on this show that is a little bit overlooked, but it's going to be a key piece in managing the energy that we have and making making sure that it's not going to waste. Yeah, you're 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 absolutely spot on, and I, I think that that is too often overlooked, right? Because I think the journey to net zero is one that has that as a piece, right? And a lot of people forget that that's, that's an important part of the journey towards net zero. Our, our legacy actually starts off with a company that was founded in 2012. So while CleanWatts was actually founded in 2020, what we did to build CleanWatts was put at the centerpiece of, uh, of the company, a previously existing company whose mission was really kind of software-driven visualization management control and efficiency behind the meter for electricity consumption. And so that company had actually, before we created CleanWatts, already garnered, you know, the 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 customer base of, you know, airports, uh, banks, hotels, hospitals, schools, even some residentials. So we were already operating in all those different spaces. I think the market has moved significantly from those years before 2020, where discussions were largely based around, you know, baselining of, hey, here's my cost yesterday. Can you can you shave off guaranteed shaving shave off of you know eight ten percent savings? Uh, the reality is that you really can't improve that which you don't measure. And so what what our software behind the meter sort of offers, and and you know any other company that's operating in this space will probably like look at it the same way, is by visualizing in real time how energy is consumed, stored, and even generated, and then optimizing all those three uh, sort of considerations you're going to get into a situation where you're going to have better data-driven decisions. And, and that's, a, that's at the heart of this efficiency drive, right? So efficiency has to be intelligent. It has to be based on a whole bunch of different factors, ranging from what the weather's like tomorrow to when should the load be switched on, 
how are you know the tariff structures looking if you've got dynamic pricing in the in the in the market right what are the resiliency requirements from the grid efficiency speaks to all of that right it's not just simply a here's a sensor and here's uh you know some sort of capacitor that allows you to modulate uh your load and so obviously we've been hearing a lot lately about ai uh do you see that playing a factor going forward for you guys yeah completely completely absolutely so the applicability of AI in this landscape is uh, is is the potential for it is huge. Until recently, I think all companies have been looking at this through the lens of algorithms and machine learning. Uh, I think you know ramping this up into uh, into into the opportunity realm of you know getting getting big data into the picture and uh, and and forecasting predicting with far greater accuracy. Uh, what's going to be happening at the grid uh, level in the region, for instance? You know, these are things that are going to be really, really powerful. I think in the next few years. So, as it relates to utilities, I could see this as you know highly competitive uh, with utilities. Right? I mean, they're out there building the utility scale solar, wind, but in, with this community model, I mean, you're obviously taking away from their revenue base. So, how has that interaction been with the utilities, where this essentially is driving down the need? Um, or you know the substantial need for them, they'll still be a need, but it's obviously a, re- a reduction of what's necessary for them to generate. Yeah, so I think I, it's a fair question, and I you know uh, just just as a starting point, I'll say that it depends which utility you're talking to, right? So the large incumbents will oftentimes dig their heels in, and as is often the case when humanity faces a big inflection or a paradigm shift, there are others that are usually smaller lean in, right? So the the smaller utilities tend to say, ooh, I love this. You know, can we work with you and can we help you uh, grow and establish yourselves in this space? Globally, right? There's there's a consideration to be made here. Uh, it's taken us 120 years from Tom Edison's time to get to 27,000 terawatt hours of electricity demand globally. It's going to take us two decades to get to 50,000, right? And most of that is going to be felt where we live, work, and play, right? Where we electrify heating, cooling, transport, it's posing a non-negligible challenge on the physical infrastructure that is effectively the low voltage part of the grid. And so the facts of life include PV solar capacity on rooftops, batteries, EV charging stations, heat pumps, and stuff like that. And so if if your role as a DSO uh, or distribution network operator, right, is, um, is to provide sort of uh, the reliability of the grid, Right, um, it, it, you know, it it behooves everybody to sort of take a much more active and involved role in uh, in managing the relationship that we all have with energy, and that's a com- that's a complete paradigm shift, right? So as we look at distributed power and distributed resources, uh, you know, you, me, all of us, we need to kind of recalibrate our relationship with energy, and that's going to be a very difficult uh, task to undertake for any retailer or utility. And so we partner with retailers and utilities. And I think the best way was put by a, a CF, uh, CEO of, um, of a, uh, a TSO, so a transmission service operator, right? Operating above the DSOs in Europe. Uh, when uh, in a recent um, sort of panel discussion in Brussels, uh, this is the CEO of uh, Ilia. You know, he, he was saying, look, you know, for us, local energy markets, energy communities, those are all good things because if we activate at that level, the level of granular control, it cr- it provides for a much more resilient and stable grid overall as we usher through this massive change, right? 
And and I should add one more thing. This is an and discussion, not an or discussion, right? So it's it's not a binary discussion because of the twenty-seven thousand to fifty thousand that number that I just talked about. We need all of the work on the supply side, and we need a lot of work on the demand side, right? And so those two things have to work concurrently. And so I'm I'm pretty optimistic and upbeat about uh, the opportunity here to collaborate. So really, more of a complementary discussion. Hundred percent, hundred percent, absolutely. We're here to really kind of uh, unshackle and expedite the transition for local communities, right? And, and I think that's why it's also critical that the regulatory environment and the policymakers get it right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so on that point, it's uh, it's interesting. You know, here in Europe, we got uh, we got policymakers all the way up to the European Commission in Brussels, kind of. Uh, you know, extolling the, the 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 benefits of renewables and how fast we need to transition for a whole host of different reasons, like energy security, decarbonization, climate change, whatever you want, right? And uh, and so the urgency is definitely there in the messaging, and the policies certainly reflect that. Um, what we're finding interesting is that uh, there's a bit of cognitive cognitive dissonance when it comes to the regulators' ability to travel fast, right? So the policy is there. And gosh, it takes months, right, to get to get some things approved. And 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 I I've seen that by the way in every country, like all the different countries we're 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 exploring and testing out and 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 having discussions in. Uh, not only here in Europe, right? It's it's the same thing in some of the states that we're looking at in the U.S., right? So there is sort of this dissonance that's happening between what the policy says and how fast it's actually being sort of approved and green lighted to move forward, right? So where are you, you know, you mentioned Portugal uh, as your starting point that you've expanded out uh, in Europe beyond there, and you're looking at the states. Uh, where all, all are you operating now, and where do you see being able to expand this business model, maybe particularly in the U.S.? Like, what are the the environments that are most conducive to to this type of model? Sure. Well, I'll start off with Europe, since that's our our, our, our domestic territory, and, and really more specifically Portugal, right? So, so we're very focused on Portugal, obviously, this being our home home market, um, you know, adjacent to it and part of the same one wholesale market, there's uh, Spain. So Iberia as a whole is one energy market, if you will. And so... Um, and so we're, we're, we're very keen to expand into Spain. Uh, another country we're looking at with great amount of focus is Italy. Um, you know, that's a country that's poised for massive growth in the energy community space. Uh, we're in the last leg of a multi-year journey to uh, see the adoption of the Renewable Energy Directive Third Revision into national law. And most people will tell you that it's probably September, October timeframe this year when it becomes, when the decree becomes law. Um, and and that's going to open up a lot of growth. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of demand in uh, in local communities up and down the, the entire country. I, I think across Europe, it's a matter of uh, when, not if, each country kind of evolves towards these these type of local energy market uh, constructs. Um, so I'm I'm quite confident that that'll happen over the course of the next uh, few years in the U.S. We tend to focus our sites on uh, really the northeast quadrant of the U.S. for now. Uh, we're looking at some interesting projects in uh, sort of Rhode Island, Massachusetts, uh, New York State. You know, there where we see kind of the the perfect storm of high energy prices, low efficiency rates, and favorable regulatory environments. So then, once you have the anchor tenant, how do the consumers you know gain access to this? Is it a opt in? process that you go out to the community and ask if they want to be a part of it or how does that work? Yeah, absolutely. It is. Uh, you know, this is uh, the, the, the spirit, the intent of the directive is to offer uh, the optionality to 
you know, citizens and, and, and companies across Europe. Um, and so when we, when we sign our, our PPA behind the meter with the anchor client, we're already in sort of activation mode, if you will, within that local community, within the radius of what's allowed. And that's probably an interesting sort of, uh, sort of sidebar, if you will. There is a perimeter to that community, right? So in Portugal, you know, if the anchor client's a low voltage establishment, right? So we've got about a two kilometer radius between that point of generation and the outer perimeter of the consumption, right? So anyone who's within that two kilometer range if it's a medium voltage uh, construct, uh, we're out to four kilometers. So that's uh, that already gives you ample sort of space to go knock on doors and and sign contracts and and sort of for for, for folks to sign up and uh, and reap the benefits. Right. The the Italian landscape's a little bit different. The decree that's on on proposal right now and that we're waiting for Brussels to communicate back to Rome actually ascribes the point of reference for the community to the primary substation which means you've got literally sometimes even 10, 15 kilometers between uh, generation consumption as a perimeter. So quite, quite large perimeter. I'd have to imagine the positive responses to, to this opportunity would be, would be tremendous. Yeah, yeah, it is. It, it really is. And, and I think, you know, for a lot of reasons, there's, uh, there's a tremendous amount of uh, tailwind. Like a lot of people are looking eagerly at the space and they, uh, they recognize it as a defining characteristic of Energy 2.0, right? It's, it's the paradigm shift. So what do you think could be done to help further this initiative as, as you look to expand to other countries, other communities, you know, maybe not just this specific business model, but things very similar, whether it's speaking policy, education, consumer education, I think is, is, is a key uh, to this, which I think we've been doing a very good job on because more people are interested in it and people that maybe two years ago wouldn't even consider it are now looking at it and saying, Hey, there's, there's a way that I can get involved now. It's not just a utility in these big solar farms that will help me uh, participate in the energy transition. But what do you think could help could be done to help further this along? Yeah, no. So, so first off, energy literacy is absolutely front and center. You know, I, I, I've had that discussion with a number of different um, representatives of the world energy council at some of their events. You know, there, there definitely is opportunity for, much greater information sharing and awareness raising. A lot of people, I think, find themselves poorly equipped with an understanding of how they can make a difference. Uh, and this is where I think smart systems can actually help educate everyone from residentials to small businesses, right? So if you start to gamify things, you start to actually create visibility and awareness around, you know, hey, if you if you charge your your EV now uh, would be a better time than maybe this afternoon or whatever, right? So, so these kind of observations are very helpful. And of course, if you add on top of that the benefits of demand response, uh, then you're actually creating a, a monetary incentive. Like, so you actually pri- create price signaling, if you will, for offering up those. You know, if you're if you happen to be a supermarket manager, you know, you can offer up those the the bank of fridges, right, for tomorrow morning's flexibility package, right? And so. So I think that there's there's a lot of stuff that that needs to be done in the realm of of energy literacy. In terms of policy, again, as I mentioned earlier, I think I think the regulatory environment and the speed speed at which regulators travel is going to be crucial. I think we've long passed uh, the date of uh, I'd say uh, need for uh, regulators and any authority really to excuse themselves uh, as to operating with, you know, paper and emails and like we need to, like that whole process needs to be digitalized, right? So it's super fast, super efficient and 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 the cycle times need to be fast to come back, right? Because people are eager to switch, right? 
uh, and not switch in the sense of categorically unplug themselves from the grid, of course, but really complement their grid demand with local demand uh, established within that perimeter of the, of the clean energy community. And I think the other thing that I think would be helpful is if I, if I reflect on the IRA and I reflect on the Green Deal here in Europe, you know, interesting, the, the IRA tends to be much more focused on tax incentives and uh, sort of tax credits and incentives, really kind of focusing on the manufacturing aspect of things, or the production rather, whereas Europe tends to kind of look at, uh, the Green Deal tends to look at regulatory frameworks that allow both sort of uh, the financial environment to stand up on its own two legs uh, as a business, right? Free of like cash outs, if you will, right? And so I think I think the truth is probably a blend of both those things. Uh, we we probably need some some carrots uh, and sticks uh, for the next year or two, but I'd, I'd say concurrently we also need regulatory changes that enable both the deployment of capital and the allocation of capital quickly, right, into infrastructure. So. I, I think that those two things have to work uh, simultaneously, not sequentially. And your point on energy literacy, uh, that's why I go back to you know the software aspect of energy management being such a critical piece and just the overall data to make those informed decisions. Um, because you know I, I can't tell you when, I mean, I could give you an idea, but when I'm using the most energy in my house or when the most efficient and helping to make those decisions would be, okay, well, what's it going to cost me? If, if I decide to run my dishwasher at, you know, 10 PM versus 5 PM and being able to have that information at hand to either make those decisions myself or even have, you know, the smart software making those decisions for me when I can allocate saying, you know, these are decisions you can make for me. Um, and it's just one of those things. Again, I think it's, it's not as publicized as the broader, you know, four horsemen that we talked about before of the energy transition, but it is a key piece to make sure that we accelerate this energy transition. We will eventually get there, but it's something that that we really need to advance advance now. A hundred percent, hundred percent, and that's that's a problem that I I think is uh, is ubiquitous, right? You'll see it all over Europe. You'll see it in the states. You'll see it in parts of Asia, right? So I think, you know, for for a very long time, you know, we've we've all kind of been living in this world of uh, you know, bliss of ignorance, right? So like, we just switch on the lights and we have no clue what happens behind the plug, right? And uh, and then the other thing is the invoices themselves, you know, probably not so much today for many of the large retailers because they've been kind of sort of forced to improve their their uh, transparency. Uh, but, you know, I, I still remember energy bills that were three, four, five, six pages long and, you know, you'd need like a PhD in energy to to understand what's inside this 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 pack of sheets of paper, right? So, so I think I think we've we've evolved, but we still have a lot to do. And I think the entry of, you know, super intuitive platforms that allow sensible decisions to be made, I, I think that that's going to be a defining characteristic. We it has to be right. And as you take a step back and look at the broader energy transition, what do you think are some of the biggest hurdles? That we're facing, you know, trying to hit the goals that we've set out with with the with the Paris Agreement uh, and individual country goals by 2040, 2050, uh, that we've all set for ourselves. What are some of the biggest challenges and hurdles that you think are facing the renewable energy industry? Yeah, I think I think two things are really kind of paramount here. Uh, one is the regulatory framework, and as I've said, I, this sounds like a broken record, but it's a really important piece for me. Is just the speed at which approvals come back for these constructs to start switching on because it's an and discussion, right? So while we're doing the grid scale, solar and 
you know, front of the meter, large scale batteries and, and offshore wind and and ramping up even some investments in nuclear and whatnot, depending on which part of the planet you're on. All those things are great. You also need the the local demand side sort of uh, activation. And that's just a, a, a segment that needs to travel super fast, right? Because people are, are in, in need of assistance and help. And um, and and I think it's a, it's very important for us to streamline and render more efficient that whole process. The other piece that I'd call out, sort of this, it's it's a weird sort of landscape because we've got, you know, if you if you look at the infrastructure that's required, there's a lot of dependency uh, that comes from one or two, three three countries, right? And uh, I think for the new paradigm to emerge and to be stable for the entire world. Uh, you know, we have to recognize that we might need, you know, local s- sources of products and equipment and manufacturing. Uh, so that's a good thing. That means, you know, we're, we're kind of igniting economic growth in all parts of the world to create a more balanced uh, energy landscape. But I think for the foreseeable future, like in the next sort of five, 10 year range, we're still going to be heavily beholden to, you know, a few countries that have a big part of the materials production capacity, et cetera, et cetera, for the infrastructure. And that's that's just something that I think we need to we need to address head on, right? The supply chain issues are things that we've talked about uh, on this podcast a number of times because it is a it is a real concern, uh, right? Because when you set these goals but you don't have control over the materials and the products to get you there, you can make all the the goals and uh, th- that you want, but until you secure, you know, all lines of the chain, um, it can it can be challenging, or I mean, you just it's out of your hands. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and you know, I, I I I do think that there's a way to switch on some of these manufacturing capabilities faster than uh, sort of you know the the five to ten year window. I think that there's there's absolutely things that we can do to mobilize local resourcing and local efforts for some of those supplies in a much faster time frame. Just going back to to the points on the energy literacy, I mean, just what I've learned doing the podcast over the past two years, uh, my opinions on certain things as I've dug down into the details, because uh, the, there's so many aspects to this energy transition that are oftentimes overlooked, uh, but need to be addressed. And some of these smaller pieces really make a significant impact uh, in, in meeting the targets that we have. And so just getting people to understand that they actually can play a role uh, individually uh, and getting you know the momentum around that is going to make an impact. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I think so too. And uh, you know, I think so. So you know, our our view of of the energy community space is that it's a it's a collaborative effort from the beginning to the end. I mean, there is no end, but you know, to to kick it off and then to get operational requires also the engagement of people locally. They're not on our payroll, right? These are, these are people who are like, you know, using the, the kind of uh, the tech term ninja, right? So there are people inside the actual communities uh, that we work with that are, you know, effectively are ninjas and they're out there looking for the best interests of uh, the community in which they live. And they know that, hey, when we, when we get to 85, 90%, you know, of the electrons generated or matched, then it's time for us to look for another rooftop to add more capacity locally, right? And so that ninja will start to act in that d- direction. They'll also be there to say, hey, look, there's a, uh, there's a, a building that's uh, consuming more energy than they need to. Let's go behind the meter and see if we can optimize because if we can reduce that building's energy consumption, there's more to share for the community, right? And so 
these these kind of things tend to sort of paint a much more interactive and collaborative picture, and it reframes our relationship with energy generally, right? You know, we take a much more active interest in in sort of managing it uh, or helping to manage it, I should say. And how is energy storage factoring into uh, your business model? So storage is, is it's an interesting one. Until a couple of years ago, we were still kind of, at least here in Europe, it was still kind of difficult to make a business case around storage. Uh, but now I'd say in the last six months, uh, primarily driven by some of the costs that we see in the marketplace around the actual storage unitary costs, but also uh, in terms of energy costs, uh, now things are penciling out. So we're starting to pull together uh, packages that include both uh, PV solar and storage uh, and software as a package, as a service, right? Those type of uh, sort of uh, discussions are are finally economically viable, right? So they're they're very interesting and appealing. But we're we're in early stages of that. So what's uh, what's next for Clean Watts, and, and how can we keep up with what's going on? Yeah, so uh, we're steadily expanding our views into Europe. We also take a view on virtual power planting uh, capacity across a different sort of a country, right? So there's a possibility to play that card in many of the countries in Europe. And so that's a, an attractive opportunity for us because it creates like a almost like a prequel to community plays, right? It kind of prepares the landscape for more community plays uh, as we uh, dot the landscape with uh, virtual power planting. I think the other the other consideration that I would make for Clean Watts is the U.S. market is huge, uh, but we like to start small, find our footing, right? And so right now I'm I'm very excited about some of the things that we're looking at in the northeast quadrant of the U.S., uh, again, where energy prices tend to be higher, efficiency levels are slightly lower, and regulatory frameworks are really favorable. So, you know, I'd, I'd say that's that's an area that we're, that we're very keen to engage with. Uh, and we do have a small and growing team there uh, in the U.S. to serve uh, serve that landscape. I think Asia is another big area for us to look at. But, you know, candidly, again, in the spirit of walking before you run, uh, right now we're in learning mode, right? So we have uh, we have a partner with whom we uh, learn that's based in Tokyo. Uh, that's a, a large distributor, and through them we uh, the company's called Macnica, and uh, we work with uh, with them to understand the, the evolving needs of the Japanese landscape as you know a, a learning lab, if you will, for us to understand how that market's evolving. Right. So, well, Michael, thanks for joining us on the show. I really appreciate the discussion. Uh, very interesting. Thank you. Take care. I'm David Banmiller, and this is The Interchange Recharged. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts and suggestions for topics we should look at on future episodes. You can find us on Twitter. We're at Interchange Show. See you next time.